And the positive symptoms uh, involve primarily hallucination and delusion. So hallucination is a perceptual experience that uh, makes people hear things, hear voices who have, when, when they have actually nothing, nobody's there is talking to them or anything like that. And a delusion is usually pretty strong conviction of something to be true when it actually it is, and against any evidence to the contrary. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%. A real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is PhD and MD Fabio Ferrarelli. He's an associate professor of uh, psychiatry and a director of the Sleep and Schizophrenia Program. This is at University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. So we're going to talk about biomarkers of schizophrenia and related disorders. So Fabio, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you got into this area of study, and then I want to ask you about your current work. Sure. Yeah, so I am a physician, and I did actually my medical training in Italy, where I'm originally from. And I came to U.S. now almost couple, almost 20 years ago to do a research experience. And I thought that was going to be kind of a short leave. Then I was going to go back and do some work there, but end up staying actually here in this country ever since. And my research interest is really related, particularly revolving around uh, schizophrenia and psychosis, but it was primarily better understanding of the pathophysiology, neurobiology of psychiatric disorders. The, the reason being that while for other uh, medical fields, we do have a deeper understanding and knowledge about the mechanisms that are involved in uh, that specific disorder, being like, for example, you know, high blood pressure, you know, we understand how it works, how to measure it and how to treat it, diabetes, or a lot of medical disorders. For psychiatric disorders, what we know, it's primarily based on clinical assessment. It's our judgment, what's, what's happening. And we really don't have any objective way to assess what's wrong, when, what's going on, in an objective marker of the disorder that we are trying to diagnose. And that was one thing that I... Go ahead. Sorry. That was one thing that I really was interested about and I wanted to have a, a deeper understanding of. Well, tell me about schizophrenia. I don't know very much about it. I haven't I haven't interviewed anyone about it. So if you could yeah. just tell me about the disorder and what, what's known about it, and then we'll talk about uh, your work to further the understanding of it. Yeah, so uh, schizophrenia is a, a major psychiatric disorder. And usually when you assess a patient clinically, we look for a couple of main features. One are what we call the positive symptoms. And the positive symptoms uh, involve primarily hallucination and delusion. So hallucination is a perceptual experience that uh, makes people hear things, hear voices who have, when, when they have actually nothing, nobody's there is talking to them or anything like that. And a delusion is usually pretty strong conviction of something to be true when it actually it is, and against any evidence to the contrary. And usually these are called positive symptoms because are things that are present where they should be there, where are like considered 
particularly disruptive and in your face, something that the, the, the patient will share with you and it will be a great concern for them and are often the reason why they also patient or family member, somebody seek help and, and treatment from, from a psychiatrist. The negative symptoms are uh, instead things like uh, social withdrawal, lack of motivation, anhedonia, difficulty enjoying things and getting interested in things. And they are features that uh, often are present alongside the positive symptoms that are very hard to treat. The other thing that it's very common in patients with schizophrenia is to have cognitive deficit and they involve a, a range of domains from memory to attention to speed of processing how quickly we process information and that is also another very hard to treat feature that makes the life of this individual uh, very difficult and and usually it's it's associated to a worse prognosis because obviously it affects the world function what do you mean would they have a sudden cognitive impairment like um someone that has schizophrenia do they have active periods and then periods where it it's quiet, and how is their cognition impacted when, but I'm just making this up, I don't know if, they, if it's the case, but again, do they, is cognition impaired selectively when it's active or all the time? So that's a very good question. Now, positive symptoms are the one that usually fluctuates the most. You know, when there are periods when you have a lot of, you might have higher level hallucinations or delusions, they are very intense, very frequent, etc. a period where they tend to subside, especially because we have a treatment intervention like antipsychotic medication that are effective. And so when you treat them and the patient responds, these symptoms improve. For cognition, it's a little bit more difficult. To, it's not necessarily a, a, a waxing and waning. It's not necessarily that there is a, a lot of fluctuation. What usually happens is that in some cases, having a lot of positive symptoms can make their ability, for example, to focus on things, to pay attention to things, to remember things worse, right? And therefore, when these other symptoms are, are gone or subside, their cognition gets a little bit better. But usually what happens is that they get a hit. So they get, when the disease is diagnosed, diagnosed they, they show some deficit, cognitive deficit, but tend to be pretty persistent. And therefore, there is an impact on their quality of life and their prognosis that is tends to be pretty significant and pretty persistent. Um, so if I knew someone that was recently experiencing schizophrenia at the start of it, how would I know? But let's say, I don't know, I had a, again, a child that turned uh, 20 or 21, you know, it's a boy, and all of a sudden he started experiencing this. What would that look like if I didn't know uh, any better? Usually what happens is that you will see often a sudden change in the behavior. For example, a lot of individuals who had the, what we call the first episode of the illness tend to be become very paranoid, very uh, guarded, uh, very uh, mistrustful about other people. They also act in a sort of unusual way. For example, you see them in a room, nobody else is there, it looks like they are talking to somebody. They are attending to something, they are preoccupied, they are distracted. They are not really paying attention, maybe interacting with you, but they seem to be, you know, lost in their own little inner world, if you will. Uh, the other thing is that uh, often there is a decline in functioning that involves both social interaction. So maybe um, kids or adolescents uh, that were very engaged, that they were very active as friends, they were involved in a lot of activities, Etc. All of a sudden, we start 
not wanting to leave their room, their house, like kind of a withdrawn, not not engaged anymore, etc. And sometimes that uh, it's reflected in uh, uh, worse academic performance. So they are in high school or in college, they start falling behind, they start uh, getting worse grade, or, and often they drop out from college. So there is a number of manifestation, if you will, a number of, of features that are strongly suggested that this individual might be developing schizophrenia or, or have a major psychotic disorder. So in your experience, the first, what do you call it? The first episode of schizophrenia or attack of it? Or yeah, yeah. How is it different usually, subsequent? Yeah, yeah. Usually people get a few different ways to describe it. The most common are the first psychotic episode of first date, you know, because it's really the first time that uh, uh, illness manifests itself. And what happened is that there is a period, usually you had to have these symptoms for at least six months in order to have actually diagnosis of schizophrenia. Because there are individuals who might have a, what we call the brief psychotic episode. So like you may have a shorter a spur, uh, you know, a, a stint, if you will, with these, these symptoms that they tend to resolve itself and that they will not end up developing schizophrenia. One thing to keep in mind that often they could be a substance-induced psychosis. So if you use especially certain kind of substances, heavy marijuana use or cocaine or stimulants, so there are a number of psychoactive medication that can um, mimic some of the psychotic symptoms that are usually experienced with, by individuals who have schizophrenia. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What's the difference in subsequent times versus the first time where someone's affected? Well, usually, again, it, it's hard to generalize and say this is going to be true for everybody, but... Uh, there is a, a tendency of the individual at the first break to then experience, especially as I was saying before, if they respond to antipsychotic treatment, to have an improvement of their symptoms. Now, this doesn't mean that they will stay in a remission where we describe it, so that the symptom, especially the positive symptoms, will will be uh, consistently for for a long period of time uh, in in remission. But sometimes the, the illness itself has some kind of an ebb and flow, so I have fluctuation. And so we'll have a period when they are doing better, and then all of a sudden they will get worse again. And this usually requires, for example, a medication adjustment. So to increase the dose of antipsychotics, sometimes they stop responding to any medication, you have to switch to another medication. And so this is one aspect of that. Usually what happens is that when a patient becomes more chronic and tends to have more episode, it becomes more and more... Uh, in some ways, complicated to manage. In some other cases, they tend to uh, respond well to the first medication or the first couple of the trials, and then you can keep them stable for a long period of time. 
However, what happens is that usually with aging, in part because of the medication side effects and other comorbidities, uh, you're going to experience some worsening in, for example, you know, social and cognitive functioning and some of the negative symptoms, which are, again, as I was saying before, more treatment resistant, are going to manifest themselves. And so somebody will have less, more of a social network, less able to engage with other people, and therefore eventually need a lot of additional help, you know, to function in addition to the natural aging process. What determines the frequency of the episode someone will have in your mind? What determines the severity? Is it you know, is the person okay, then they have a big life stressor, and then that triggers another episode, or what do you see yes. triggers it to people? Yeah, I mean, but that's a, a very good question. Usually, there is a genetic predisposition. So, for example, in the general population, the incidence of schizophrenia, it's r- around the 1%, give or take. You know, in uh, identical twins, it can be all the way up to 50%. No, now, that doesn't mean that it's all genetically driven because obviously, as you know, you know, identical twins are 100% share their genes and only in 50% of cases, they both will have schizophrenia. However, there is a significant genetic component to the extent that having a certain predisposition will increase tremendously the chance that you might develop the disorder. That's one thing that affects the likelihood of developing the disorder and the severity and the outcome of the disorder. The other thing is... What is this again? What modulates it tremendously? Well, it's a genetic disposition. There, there are certain genes that have been most strongly associated uh, uh, to developing schizophrenia. And therefore, uh, if you have, for example, an identical sibling with schizophrenia, you have up to 50% chance of developing schizophrenia. If you have a right, but more, more, more normally, more commonplace would be... Uh, does it skip a generation? Because I've heard... I've known a few people that had schizophrenia and their parents seemed to be okay. The rest of their family was okay, but they would have maybe a grandfather or an uncle. So it seems like it skips a generation, but what have you observed? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, so usually what happens is that uh, if you have somebody, what we call the proban, somebody who has schizophrenia, right? Their likelihood to have their own offspring is lower. So what happens is that, for example, the, the uncle is a good example, right? Where you have a family member who has a schizophrenia. Let's say, you know, an uncle, an aunt, whatever that might be. And then they don't have children, right? But then you have the next generation that because of that predisposition, somebody from, from the niece of an nephew, they might develop schizophrenia. And so in that sense, it, it skips a generation because the, the, the person who uh, had the schizophrenia end up not having kids, but in some ways, you know, the, the genes are there and there, and the next generation will manifest itself in a, in a relative of some sort, you know. So that's that's one scenario. Oh, okay. Because of the nature of, of schizophrenia, is it very rare that people that have it have kids because they're just not able to manage the I mean, disorder well enough? I mean, I would say it's, it used to be a lot more like that, especially when we didn't have uh, treatment, good treatment that at least could uh, control the positive symptoms, you know, like and, and when people were, were really feeling overwhelmed, then sometimes they end up doing, you know, in hospital, spend extensive period of time in hospital because of that. So that has been a little bit better uh, in the sense that uh, it's more likely 
for somebody with schizophrenia to have kids, but still it's less likely than in the general population. That makes it obviously less likely that you transfer to the next generation directly your, your own genes and in that case, the predisposition to the disorder. So there is a little bit of that piece that is getting, getting involved that makes less likely uh, that, that the following generation will have. And what you're saying, it might skip a generation in that sense because it goes more through other type of relatives. That's the case. The other thing is that, uh, as I was saying before, you don't have a hundred percent, you know, so the genes are only part of the story and they give you definitely a higher chance of developing the disorder, but they don't necessarily, you know, clearly make your destiny, you know, and so decide whether you're going to de develop a disorder or not. And therefore, sometimes that can happen. It can happen that, you know, the, the second generation, or the immediate generation after uh, the son or the daughter, the, the patient with schizophrenia might not have a disease, but they might transfer that predisposition and maybe their kids uh, might, might develop the disorder. So if there's genetic basis for it, is there a genetic test that can be done uh, to determine if someone has, you know, let's say two copies of the gene, if that's what's needed yeah. for schizophrenia? Yeah. So again, as I was saying, I mean, there are definitely certain genes that uh, are more likely to be associated. However, there has been a lot of genetic studies, even a large, large group of uh, even, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals to try to see whether there was a, a strong link. And what, what it really came out of these studies is that usually what happened, it's a configuration of many genes that have little variation in, their, in the DNA that when are combined are making more likely for somebody to uh, develop a disorder. It's a little bit like a puzzle where when uh, it's almost like you, 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 you know, when, when several little changes come together, that's when you have a much higher chance to develop a disorder. So in a nutshell, there is not a silver bullet, a gene that you say, okay, if that gene is like for Down syndrome, or, you know, if you have three copy of the chromosome 21, you know, you're clearly uh, very likely to develop uh, Down syndrome, but that's not the case for schizophrenia. You have a co configuration of little changes in a number of genes, and when they come together, they will lead to, you know, to, to the likelihood of developing so again, is there uh, genetic testing that someone can get? Is it commercially available or is it still only at the lab stage? Or you know, what, what can people do if they suspect, let's say a family member has it or they have it? Yeah, and that, that, is, that is one of the, you know, the challenge. I have to say that there is an exception. There is the 22Q11, which is actually a genetic alteration that is present in some individuals. And in that case, if you have that, you have up to a third chance, 33% chance of developing schizophrenia as a, as a, you know, young adult. That's probably the, the closest that there is to is the situation where when you have a certain gene, a certain gene alteration, you have a much higher chance to developing schizophrenia than the general population. For everybody else, there is really no point in doing any uh, genetic test because, uh, as I was saying before, you know, had to look at 100,000 people to try to identify some changes in certain genes that make it more likely. But there is nothing that it's really applicable to everybody to say, okay, if I have this gene with this alteration, 
have a very good chance of developing schizophrenia. Even when you actually uh, clinically are diagnosed with, with that, there is nothing you can do biologically to fully confirm the diagnosis. There is no blood test, there is no uh, measuring any, any metabolite, any parameter that will confirm that diagnosis. There are a few things that you can do, some changes in your brain, in the fitness of certain part of your brain or the, that, that can give you a hint if that's, that's the case or not, but it's nothing conclusive to say, okay, if I have this alteration, this biological alteration, I can be officially diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. So where does your work come in? Are you looking for biomarkers that people can test and reliably figure this out, or what are you focusing on? Precisely. I mean, that, that's definitely one, one of the goals of, of my work is to really identify biological measures, we call it biomarker, that can uh, more reliably, consistently identify individuals with this disorder. If not uh, diagnostically, the other thing is, you know, sometimes you can have um, measures that tells you that something is altered in certain part of the brain, in certain uh, uh, you know, brain circuitry, and you can use that information to guide and try to develop novel treatment. And therefore, that could eventually improve the quality of life of these individuals, even if we don't find something that is 100% accurate in identifying people with schizophrenia. Because one thing to keep in mind is that you can have alteration being it and I can give you an example of some of the measures I've been collecting over the years, but we don't know if these are specific for patients with schizophrenia or shared across other psychiatric disorders, you know. But that doesn't mean that that information is not helpful because it's giving us an information that something is altering the brain of these individuals and we can have a target to engage or an intervention that can improve the activity of that part of the brain and eventually improve the symptoms or recognition or other aspect of the functioning of this patient that otherwise will go untreated. Because medications are very general, are not really targeting a specific circuitry or specific part of the brain, but they tend to have more of a global effect. Well, going back a little bit, how is schizophrenia diagnosed? Like, how long does it take for someone to get a diagnosis on average? And I know everyone's situation is different, but some conditions seem to take years. Like, how how difficult is it to get a diagnosis, and what kind of a doctor would give you one? Yeah, so the diagnosis of, of usually is done by a psychiatrist. It could be maybe sometimes a psychiatrist. As a doctor, it's a psychiatrist who is the one who is able to interview the individual who is presenting the symptoms and eventually uh, come up with a, a, you know, idea of what might be going on diagnostically with that individual. Specifically for schizophrenia, you had to have had certain symptoms, and particularly these positive symptoms I was telling you about, like the hallucination and the delusions, which are part of what we call the criterion A, for at least six months. If these uh, symptoms were present for at least six months, then you can make the diagnosis of schizophrenia. One, a few caveats to that, as I was saying also before, is that if these symptoms were driven by using certain drugs, certain substances like cocaine, stimulants, so, so, so drugs that are known to facilitate the onset of these 
uh, hallucination, delusions with so-called positive symptoms, then in that case, you cannot diagnose schizophrenia until you're sure that these medications were not responsible for these symptoms. So in that case, what you do is to make sure they have not been using, and if they've been using, gather off of this medication. If the symptoms persist, and persist for long enough, like the six-month period, then you can say, okay, this, this patient had schizophrenia. And in addition to this positive, the hallucination, the delusions, often you had to have some other symptoms, for example, a disorganized symptoms so that you, your thought process is very scattered. You cannot, you cannot, it's often you are incoherent, etc. or some of the negative symptoms I was saying before, but kind of withdrawn, you are, don't have interest and not disengaged. And so the combination of this will make possible for you to diagnose schizophrenia. But why do these things happen? Has anyone figured out what's going on in the brain to cause these things to happen? And are there things that can happen in someone's life that push them into schizophrenia? Or an episode? Yes. Um, I have to say, we have made progress in understanding that, that certain parts of the brain are especially affected. So there is, for example, the prefrontal cortex, which is the, the frontal part of the brain, and uh, that is particularly affected by this uh, by patient with schizophrenia. And when this uh, part is altered, and what happens usually is that there is some kind of atrophy going on. So there is a lo loss of uh, uh, functionality, also loss of the gray matter in this individual. And, and also there is a problem in the connectivity. So in the way this part of the brain communicate with other parts of the brain, particularly with deep brain structures like the striatal and the thalamus, so when, when this disconnection happening, these uh, regions are affected, then you start having some of what I was saying, the positive symptoms and some of the negative symptoms. Um, now, what is responsible for that is genetic predisposition, as I was saying. Wait, 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 wait. One, second. one second. You said positive symptoms. You mean there's an upregulation of things that may be bad? It's not from positive meaning that actually good things happen. Well, that's a, that's a, it's, it's it's a good point. I mean, we call it positive symptoms because they are not necessarily good for you, but they are very what we call the psychotic symptoms. They are very noticeable, very you know, in contrary to the negative symptoms, which is something is missing. So you you are less interested in doing things. You are less motivated to do things. The positive symptoms are actually hyperactivity of things that you will usually happen. For example, when you when you have a conversation, you hear the voice of somebody else talking to you, right? But if that voice, you hear a voice when nobody is talking to you, that it's a hyperactivation or something that usually happens when you have a conversation. And in this case, it's happening when you are not having a conversation, right? So it's a it's it's positive psychotic because it's an hyperactivity of something that usually happens, but it's it's too much. It's not happening in a normal way, in a standard context. And the same thing is for your thinking, you know. Each one of us has some concern about, for example, safety, about, you know, potentially having some leaving some in conversation, whether I can I trust what this person is telling me and not telling me, etc. But in patients with schizophrenia, this is way more enhanced and they feel very paranoid, very concerned about what other people might think and say, and sometimes go on developing this big conviction that 
everybody is in to get them to take advantage of them. There is a big plot against them. And so all of that is going to lead to them being overwhelmed by this thinking and have these uh, delusions that all the world is, uh, everybody is, is against them. And, and right. obviously will lead to a, a big breakdown. And do the medications work though? What are their mechanisms of action, the current ones that are out there? Yeah, so the most common medication, what we call antipsychotic, that I mean, counteract these positive psychotic symptoms, are usually anti-dopaminergic because the dopaminergic system is the one that is supposed to be the upregulation, the hyperactivity, as you were saying before, of dopamine seems to be, uh, especially in this structure, for example, in the striatum, is supposed to uh, play a significant role in developing the psychotic symptoms and the, the delusions of hallucination. The other thing is the serotoninergic system. So hyperactivity of the serotoninergic system as well is supposed to be involved in uh, generating some of these positive symptoms. Again, most of the things that we know and we are able to treat relatively effectively are about the psychotic symptoms, these delusions, hallucinations, and most of the uh, medication that we currently use able to decrease the activity of uh, the, the hyperdopaminergic activity that is present in this, uh, we call it mesolimbic circuitry because are involved in the deep brain structure and are involved with the uh, emotional processing of information and how we, we react to external input. And this is really the best that we know so far. Uh, but but we're kind of trying to understand greater details also what is involved in the other aspect of schizophrenia especially, again, the negative and the cognitive symptoms. And that's where some of the work I've been doing, I think, has been kind of a moving towards. Are there different types and severities of schizophrenia? Yeah, so we used to be, actually, in the previous version of the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is what we call the, the Bible of psychiatry, so the book that we used to really, uh, for diagnostic purposes, there used to be different subtypes of schizophrenia. That has been kind of removed in the sense that there is a lot of variability in the way the patient presents themselves and the kind of symptoms they, they have. I would say more generally, there are certain individuals in which the so-called positive symptoms dominant, so the hallucination and the, so the psychotic symptoms are, are dominant, some in which more the negative symptoms tend to, to be more dominant, some in which the cognitive symptoms tend to be more dominant. These are really the three main domains that, that are present. Some individuals have are more impaired, so the severity is so so all these domains, for example, are in a very significant way. In some in some other subject, uh, the, the the impact of the illness is not as as strong. Usually one thing that helps is if you have a higher functional functionality before the, the illness begins, so a high level of IQ, you know, and, and if the disease starts later in life, so because most of the times individuals who develop the first break early 20s, if that happens, usually the impact is, is worse. You know, the, the prognosis of illness tends to be worse. But if, if the illness occurs later in life in the 30s, mid to late 30s, and in women seems to have a better prognosis in general, that has tend to have a more favorable outcome. If it happens in younger individuals, 
mayor and uh, who do not have to begin with a higher level of functioning before the illness because they had, for example, academic difficulties, social problems, etc., then usually the outcome is going to be worse. And unfortunately, we're going to require a lot of help to function. Well, if I was sitting in a room, you know, talking to someone that had schizophrenia, what would I experience if they were, you know, for each of the three types, what would, what would it be like to speak to? Well, what will happen is that uh, probably the person who is most impaired will look uh, very shut down, will be very difficult to have a coherent conversation with that person. They could either respond with yes or no, often maybe not even engage in a, any meaningful conversation because either attending to their own psychotic symptoms, hearing voices and so be involved in an inner conversation or feeling very uh, paranoid or very uh, mistrustful of, of, of your presence there or what you're doing there, etc. Maybe they will not talk to you or they will, you know, refer to you in a very, uh, like, you know, obscure way, you know, like maybe they, they think that they can communicate with you, but not really want to talk to you and these kind of things. Somebody who is... Could you, could you call that like paranoid dominant schizophrenia? Something, something. How is this expressed? Okay, good. And what are the other? Yeah. yeah. Then you might have somebody instead who is in which the symptoms are a little bit better controlled, and especially the psychotic symptoms, but they still struggle to engage because the negative symptoms are predominant, etc. So you will find somebody who is not necessarily concerned about you or is not necessarily, you know, not not like you know, not sharing information because they think you might do something or might know something or might be into something, but they are not quite interested in engaging with you, you know, and therefore they will be not necessarily God, they will not be necessarily uh, suspicious of you, but they will not be very interactive with you in the sense they will, you know, again, reply as a yes or no, or or they will show little interest in having a, a conversation with you. You know, and so they, I would call it more of a withdrawn kind of a negative symptoms, like socially, you know, impaired, if you will, uh, kind of schizophrenia type, you know. And, and then you could have somebody actually who uh, might not have either of these uh, symptoms uh, predominant, but may struggle to engage in a very uh, deep conversation and very uh, back and forth, etc., because of the cognition, you know, so because they have been uh, struggling, for example, to pay attention to things, remember things. And so you will see that they, it's almost a little bit talking with a aging person, you know, somebody who uh, has, uh, wants to be there, wants to have a communication, a conversation with you, but they clearly have some issues. They can't focus on things, they cannot attention to things very very well they cannot remember things very well they cannot process the information every every communication it's 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 kind of you know not not as rewarding not as as like as you would expect with the normal interaction you know and this would be the individual who have more of a cognitive problem and and not as much affected by the psychosis uh, hallucination delusion or the negative aspect but still unable to fully engage in a meaningful conversation. What does that mean? They appear to be, uh, like they have dementia, they can't form sentences, they can't form thoughts. What yeah, they I mean, like to experience? 
sometimes it's not that uh, dramatic. It's not that they, you know, impair to the point that uh, they cannot remember anything or they cannot have a, a you know, cannot complete a sense, etc. But you will be able to, uh, by probing and try to, you know, for example, ask questions and, and, and tell her to remember things or, or, or having them describe things and see whether they, they can follow a, a conversation, etc. You you will find gap in that. They won't, won't be able, for example, to, you know, they will start the conversation, will start telling you something, and then will lose their train of thought. They will not be able to complete whatever story they will, will start from one place and then we will go maybe to a different place, etc. So it's not as dramatic and as, you know, obvious as in dimension where in some cases people won't be able to name things, will not be able to remember places or anything like that, but we will be significant in the sense they will not be able to, for example, in some cases, understand metaphor or association or analogy. We won't be able to give you a a good example of, of the, the, the connection between certain events, you know, one to another. So it's, it's something a little bit more uh, sophisticated than just uh, a basic uh, remembering things or, or being able to name things or... or but, it, but it's noticeable, right? To someone that we interview the person. Yeah. So what um, do, these meta, do these medications highlight one of the three more than others? Like I would guess... Maybe the medical community feels like the paranoia aspect is the most important thing to treat. Do you see that? Or in the action of the medications, do they tend to treat one or two out of the three problems or do they treat all three? I would say that so right right now, we, we the best uh, intervention that we have is for the psychotic, the paranoia, the hallucinations. So most of the medication we currently use are very effective for the most part at treating paranoia, the hallucinations of the psychotic symptoms. And these are the anti-dopaminergic, anti-serotonergic, anti-psychotic medication. For the other two domains, we don't have as good of a treatment as, as, as we would like to, especially pharmacologically. But we are trying to, because we are understanding better the mechanism and the brain circuitry involved in this other aspect, right now, there are new possibilities opening up. For example, non-invasive brain stimulation, like TMS, transcranial stimulation, which is approved for other conditions like depression or OCD. There are some trials trying to understand whether you can use some kind of a non-invasive brain stimulation pattern to modulate the activity of certain brain region, for example, the prefrontal cortex, and see whether that improves the cognitive functioning of patients with schizophrenia. I, for example, I'm conducting a study in which we are trying to do that. So what kind of biomarkers are you looking for? Uh, first of all, the sampling. I guess, I guess blood is invasive. But you could use saliva or sweat or maybe something, you know, not even non-contact, or non-contact I'm sorry, uh, you know, looking at patterns of flashing lights, whatever it may be. Um, are you looking for non-invasive biomarkers or what are you looking for? Yes, we're looking for an invasive biomarker, and uh, the main focus so far has been more on uh, EEG, electroencephalogram. So, because the nice thing about EEG is that uh, it, it has a very high temporal resolution. It's a millisecond. You can measure things of a millisecond thing, which is very close to the firing rate of the neurons in the brain. 
you know, and therefore it gives you some information which is very interesting, very important about the functionality of the neurons of that brain region that you are exploring. And so uh, what we have been doing primarily in the last few years has been on one hand to use sleep because sleep is an interesting state where, because see, one issue with, with patients with schizophrenia is that, uh, as I was saying before, when, when, when they are awake and you are measuring something, it's very hard to control for what we called some kind of a confounds. For example, how much attention they are paying, how much motivation. So if they are doing a task, if they are not doing the task very well, is it because they cannot do it very well or because they are having symptoms or they are not interested in getting engaged in a task and so they are not doing it well? So if you were to measure the brain activity, the EEG activity while they are doing the task, you wouldn't be able to necessarily tease apart if that part of the brain is not working properly because we cannot do well the task or because of the other symptoms they are having, right? Because they don't care about what's going on or because maybe they are distracted or, or you name it. Whereas in sleep, once you control for the stage of sleep, in which state of sleep they are, and you measure the brain activity at that, at that stage, uh, everything else being the same, if that activity is different, means that their brain is intrinsically different. There is something fundamentally different in the way that brain function in that stage will potentially be used as a biomarker to consistently find the difference between patients with schizophrenia and That's one of the things we've been doing. We've been measuring these this brain waves during sleep and found that some of that were very much altered in patients with schizophrenia versus healthy control. And they can give you is, an is this, idea. Is this during yeah. sleep or during wake time? During, during sleep. We did stuff during wake time as well, but a lot of the work that we've been doing was done during sleep. And oh, was, which part? Was it REM or deep sleep? or what, what was, was that no REM sleep. It was no REM sleep. It was light, deep, no REM sleep. N2 and N3. And, and these, these uh, spindles, sleep spindles, which are oscillations that happen at 12, 16 hertz, were very much altered, especially in prefrontal and parietal regions in, in bacterial schizophrenia versus healthy control. Okay. Um, so what do you think the key is going to be to finding successful biomarkers? Um, do you think it's going to be in the sleep because you're already finding things there? Uh, you're going to use it. maybe certain waves of entrainment to alter yes. people's sleep as the therapy, for instance? Yes, yes. So I, I think that definitely the spindles and there are also other waves that are called slow waves are in, in a promising biomarker because as I was saying, they are they can be measured very objectively. They can be measured reliably because you spend a lot of time sleeping, so you can get a lot of information and, and you can get a fair amount of data. And they are not confounded by a lot of things that happen during wakefulness. And in, in patients with schizophrenia. So, so it's a very interesting measure. We did now have run many studies in which we found that this oscillation were altered and in chronic patients, in early corporation, in the risk patients. So it seems to be there across stages of the disorder and it's associated with some of the clinical symptoms, some of the chronic symptoms. Now, what we are trying to do now is to see whether we can actually modulate this. We can find a way to engage this oscillation to improve the way the, the occurrence and the duration of this oscillation, I see that has beneficial effect on the symptoms and the functioning of this patient. So that's that's one area that we're interested in. The other thing we are going to try to do 
in wakefulness in this time, we, we are using TMS, transcendental stimulation, both as a, as a way to probe objectively. So you stimulate, for example, with prefrontal cortex, one part of the brain, and you measure with the EEG how that part of the brain responds to the stimulation. And then we use some uh, repetitive pattern TMS to modulate the activity of that region and see whether the, the, the TMS assessed before and after uh, uh, activity of the of that brain area in this case with prefrontal cortex is different. Any bad improvement? Would you um, yeah, when you say TMS, you mean transcranial magnetic stimulation? Correct. Okay, you just said it bad. I want to make sure listeners uh, heard yes. that. Um, one one last idea that came to mind when you talked about the different parts of the brain either talking or not talking properly. Um, has anyone studied the effects of ecstasy or ketamine or marijuana? Uh, either chronic use or one-time administration on people with schizophrenia. Does it help the communication? Does it hinder it? Or is it in, already in an altered state where, again, it makes it worse? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, so usually this kind of medication, these kind of drugs, actually, I would say, I mean, doketamine now is becoming a, a compound that is used for depression, for example, just considered almost like a medication in some ways. Uh, they tend to increase the connectivity and the communication between brain areas. However, sometimes it's not always better because you have to imagine one thing. You have to imagine that what we are trying to improve in schizophrenia is the communication between areas that are involved, especially in certain functions, in, for example, in cognition and, for example, in some of the negative symptoms because we want to improve their ability to effectively engage these areas. However, you don't want to overactivate the circuitry that are involved in the psychotic or the positive symptoms. We know that these are already very much active. And unfortunately, a lot of this medication, and particularly the marijuana, tend to enhance the activity of the regions of the circuitry that are more involved with the positive, the psychotic symptoms, rather than with the other uh, uh, domains affected in schizophrenia. And therefore, that is a, that's a problematic thing because they already have a lot of uh, hyperactivity of these, of these regions and, and these uh, circuitry. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why, for example, people who use a lot of marijuana tend to be paranoid, you know, tend to develop paranoia, et cetera. Now, there is, there are other things, there is a genetic predisposition, other things, but that's one of the reasons why that happens. Oh, very interesting. Hmm. Okay. Well, this has been a great call, Fabio. A lot of great info, a lot of great insight. Where can people find out more about your work and keep tabs on it? Yeah, so, I mean, as you said at the beginning, I work with the Pittsburgh Medical Center in the Department of Psychiatry. Now, I have a, I mean, I have a www.pinel.pit.edu. It's P-Y-N-E-L.pit.edu. That's the lab website. I mean, you can, uh, I don't know, there is a, on the, yeah, the university, there is a, I have a, a Twitter account or something, I mean, but, you know, yeah, my, and send me an email if you want my last name, uh, initial first name at upmc.edu. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about what we've been doing and looking forward to continue this kind of work because I think we are on the verge of discovering a, a number of measures that hopefully would be good biomarker for a number of things in schizophrenia and other psychiatric disorders. And I do think that uh, this is going to make the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the outcome of this disorder a lot better, the quality of life of this patient a lot better, and hopefully we'll get to the point where we can objectively assess this individual and, and find the best treatment. Excellent.
Well, very, very good. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Fabio. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you for, for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.